Welcome back to another episode of The End of Sport. Today, we have a something of a special episode, which is actually a recording of a symposium panel session that Johanna, Nathan, and I participated in. The symposium panel was part of William & Mary's Journal of Race, Gender, and Social Justice Spring Symposium series called Level the Playing Field, How Sports Both Hinder and Advance Social Justice Goals. It was hosted by William & Mary JD candidate Eric Beinhart, who you'll hear as host of the session. In this panel, we covered a lot of topics that may be of interest for listeners, including a bit more detail on how the show got started, what we hope to accomplish through the show, and of course, we go off yet again on college athletics and the cartel that is the NCAA. So we hope you enjoy this special episode, and thanks for listening. is Eric Beinhart and I am the senior articles editor as well as symposium coordinator for William and Mary's Journal of Race, Gender, and Social Justice. It is with great pleasure that I am introducing our guests for the uh, first segment of today's symposium. Three scholars who write extensively on sports and society. You, uh, their various collaborative pieces can be found in public outlets such as Time, The Guardian, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. As of today, their podcast, The End of Sport, has released over 100 episodes over the span of coming up on three years. Over the course of these years and episodes, they have interviewed various experts, fellow academics, journalists, athletes, athlete advocates, and many others on timely issues such as the COVID-19 pandemic and college sports, student athletes as campus athletic workers, and the violence of American football. We are thrilled to have Drs. Johanna Mellis, Nathan Common-Lamb, and Derek Silva joining us this morning. Johanna Mellis is an assistant professor of history at Ursinus College outside of Philadelphia. She is a former Division I athlete and is currently working on, working on her book, Changing the Global Game, Hungarian Sports People and International Sport During the Cold War. Nathan Common Lamb is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of New Brunswick, where he teaches on social theory and sport. He is the author of the book, Game Misconduct, Injury, Fandom, and the Business of Sport. He is currently co-authoring the book, The End of College Football, Exploitation and Harm in the Academy and on the Gridiron with Derek Silva. Derek Silva is an, assist, is an associate professor at King's University College. His areas of interest include sociocultural studies of sport, critical sociology and criminology, punishment and terrorism studies. His textbook, Power Played, a critical criminology of sport is situated at this intersection of sport, sporting culture, and crime, and reimagines sport as an important unit of analysis for critical criminologists. So once again, we're thrilled to be joined by the three of you this morning. Uh, it's, it's great to have some sociologists, uh, a, a historian, 
and as well as a crimi criminologist uh, and certainly some some perspective from our neighbors up north in Canada as well. Thanks <laughs> so, so much for having us. Thank you. <laughs> and, and I thought it would be a great way to kick off our, our discussion uh, by, by talking, uh, laying a foundation as to your podcast, The End of Sport. Uh, something I, I could talk at length about and my friends can probably attest as I'm always plugging it to them. Uh, but with the three of you here, it would be great to to hand it over to you guys to talk about what what your show, The End of Sport, uh, is about. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll thank you. Thank you so much for the introduction. I guess I'll start off. Um, the, the show focuses explicitly on questions of harm and exploitation uh, in sport. So 99.99% of the media covering sport is what I would call this sort of optimistic, positive outlook, um, or or just fact-driven. Oh, here are the stats and what's happening in sport. And on the other side of that, like, here is the how great sport is and how great it is to be a fan of sport. We take a different approach um, in our sport um, and or in our, in our podcast and our work um, to look at the harms associated with sport, how sport is actually a vehicle of exploitation, racism, discrimination, exclusion, um, and illuminate that for folks to see. Um, so our MO is to uh, talk to journalists, talk to academics, talk to scholars, talk to athletes, and amplify their voices. Um, so the podcast has never been about um, amplifying our own voices uh, primarily. So it's rare to see an, an, an episode of The End of Sport with just Johanna, myself, and Nathan. Um, we, we want to and we strive to amplify voices of other people, whether that be scholars, academics, or um, what we, I think, maybe all three of us enjoy most, amplify the the, the voices of athletes. Um, so uh, we, we don't start from that sort of um, sport is great, this positive uh, thing that builds teamwork and socialization, we we kind of reverse that and, and look at how um, uncover some of the insidious aspects of sport in order to hopefully influence some change, um, broader change, or at very least just change amongst our listeners to to think about sport in different ways. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add to that, that I think um, it's not that other podcasts don't do this, but I think we do this particularly well, is that we take kind of a broad view of sports. We don't focus on just American football. We don't focus just on soccer or world football or gymnastics, is we look at as many sports as possible. And at least for me, as someone who kind of has experienced the podcast as sort of like an extension of graduate school, like every single conversation we have, I am just learning so, so much with other people, is that we're able to kind of highlight trends and things that are going on across multiple sports at one time and not just focus on one sport, whereas a lot of um, advocates, um, rightfully so, tend to focus on the sport that they either experience, that they have family in, or the one that they're the most interested in, which makes a lot of sense because you need to have a lot of specialized expertise to be able to articulate, you know, the, the issues and the problems and how to address them. But what we try to do is, is look at these trends across many different sports and also highlight where maybe things are going particularly well, where maybe certain sports or certain parts of the world people are advocating things in a way that maybe 
could be effective in other places. Um, and so I think what we're what, what we hope to be able to do is also connect people across many different fields, across many different sports and kind of walks of life so that hopefully they can connect amongst themselves as well. Um, and yeah, I think that's something that we do. Uh, we strive to do as, as best as we can. Yeah. And I just want to underline something that Derek said before. Um, and I, I think that this is kind of, in a way, the thing that probably distinguishes us more from you know these, these kind of projects generally. We don't start from the principle that sport is an inherent good. Um, rather, what we're trying to do is focus on what capitalist sport does to those who participate in it. And we try to consistently raise the question of whether this is actually an institution that should continue to exist at all. And if it does, really try to enumerate what the cost of that institution is. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I I think that's an excellent foundation as to this you know this collaborative P, uh, project that you guys have been doing for the last few years, and you know have amassed a, a following. Uh, myself included, I've uh, found you guys and found found this podcast and, and have it immensely enjoyed the the programming that you have you've provided. Um, I was wondering, and we're wondering if you could provide or comment on the timing of the end of sport. Uh, as as previously mentioned, um, this is coming up on three years. Um, obviously, the the spring and summer of 2020 were turbulent for many reasons, uh, and we were, were we were seeing issues. On, in headlines uh, every day, obviously, that it felt like new things. And I was wondering if you'd comment on how much the, the topics that you guys discuss on the end of sport is trying to shed light. I think uh, uh, Dr. Silva had, had used the term shedding light on, on trends uh, that, that maybe are longstanding, but on, at a time like in 2020, when it seemed like they were coming to the forefront of everyone's mind. Just a comment on on the timing of the podcast. Sure, yeah, um, I think we're happy. I'll probably provide maybe just a little bit of narrative, and then I'm, I'm sure uh, Derek and Johanna can and flesh it out in, in other ways. Um, you know, you're right. There's no question that this project was inspired in a significant way by the pandemic. Derek and I had been talking about starting a project like this um, for some time. In advance, uh, but you know, we just hadn't really actually made the time to pull it together, and then suddenly the pandemic shifts our world completely, right? Like for everyone else, um, I know I felt really entirely cut off from the world, aside from you know Twitter and so forth, and and at the same time, all the issues I felt that I had been trying to warn about in my book, Game of Conduct, the ways in which health and well-being of athletes are sacrificed in the political economy of sport to produce meaning for fans. Those theme, things seem to be playing out in the most extreme possible ways during the pandemic, as leagues geared up to force athletes back before vaccines or any viable health protect protocols existed whatsoever. And, and so all of that, of course, created really a sense of urgency to, to try to make some kind of in intervention. And, that, and that's what led Derek and I to launch at that time. And actually, Joanna's participation wasn't in the cards initially because we only knew each other loosely through Twitter. 
But fortuitously, we had her on for one of our first conversations about her fascinating research on sport and communist Hungary and the ways she challenges red scare rhetoric to expose the hypocrisies of capitalist sport. And we so loved the conversation that even as it was happening, we realized that based on her experience as a college athlete, her research, her shared concerns about college sport and passionate advocacy around the harms experienced by athletes, we knew immediately that we wanted her to join us and that she shared our vision. Yeah, I guess I'll I'll just add a little bit. Um, yeah, so our first episode was on April twelfth, twenty twenty. So so quite literally, at least where I am in Ontario, Canada, I remember March nineteenth uh, was sort of lockdown day. Uh, was the day that we went. So so a couple weeks um, after after that. So what Nathan's saying about how the pot or how the pandemic really was uh, one of the sort of. Uh, the pieces of impetus for um, the, the podcast is is legit. But what what really drove me, kind of put me over the edge, was looking around and seeing, at least in Ontario, we were in full lockdown. Like we could not, we had to line up for grocery stores and like everything was shut down. And then I'm, I come home at night and I'm starting to see sports on television. And I'm starting to see talk about sports coming back. And about doing this act, these activities, and uh, well, there won't be fans. Will there be fans? Won't there be fans? All of these things. And at the very core of that was this group of laborers, group of people that were being put and and some would say forced, coerced, um, even uh, electing to participate in this activity with this pandemic, with this virus that we know absolutely nothing about, um, and we were using that. Um, socially as a, a sort of opiate, or we were attempting to use uh, sport as an opiate. And there were people at stake here. There, there were bodies, there were minds that were at stake, and people weren't really talking about that to the same degree. So I, I felt we were talking a lot about healthcare workers, and rightfully so, absolutely rightfully so, as being put at risk. But we weren't having the same discussions about athletes uh, and then when college sports started coming back, it it completely th threw me for a sort of mental, uh, I, I, I couldn't believe that this was happening. Unpaid workers were being coerced back into, um, in, into what's already in most uh, uh, often, especially when it comes to football, a violent, an inherently violent game. Um, so that all of those things were happening at the same time. There were massive mobilizations around racial justice that were like both amazing to watch, but also, as you as you said, Eric, highlighting long-standing issues in sport. Long-standing issues in sport. So we wanted to talk about these things, and mostly, I want I personally wanted an outlet to talk about these things, and that's where I I um, I, I really found the sort of niche for end of sport. Excellent. Thank you. That, uh, that's very, uh, it, it's, it's, you guys hit on a lot of, of big, big things there. And, um, as, uh, Dr. Silva, you mentioned the kind of having a lockdown date and, and, you know, thinking about April, 2020 and, and thinking about how it wasn't too, you know, the weeks before that it, we were finding out that the, the March, you know, college basketball tournament was being canceled and remembering how big of news that was, uh, uh, just 
based on the kind of in some ways overshadowing the pandemic, like you said, that we knew very little about and and were learning more about at that time. Uh, as mentioned earlier, having some perspective from from professors in Canada and ha who have experience uh, in in the Canadian education system, but as well as uh, uh, having uh, professor experience in the United States, especially at uh, Power Five institutions. I was wondering if uh, Dr. Silva and Common Lamb could mention or, or could comment on maybe what might surprise our attendees today who are less familiar uh, with maybe Canadian culture or maybe from uh, the Canadian perspective of you know, American sports culture and maybe through your interviews and and the the pieces that you've collaborated on on American college sports, uh, what strikes you as the biggest differences and, and similarities? Yeah, I think I think, uh, and we we we're devoting a piece of our introductory chapter of our book to this very question because I think, particularly um, Nathan, all three of us have a lot of experience in Power Five uh, universities. Um, and Nathan and myself have this sort of, we're kind of an interesting uh, observers, insider, outsider observers, as we both um, have experienced extensive experience at Power 5 schools, but we are Canadian, grew up in Canada, we went to school, most of our schooling in Canada, I did my PhD at the University of South Carolina, and that was actually the impetus for all of my work, and I didn't notice it at the time, seeing uh, campus athletic workers in my classes, teaching them uh, and then experiencing all of the what we call um, status coercion. Um, we can get into that a little bit later. Status coercion of campus athletic workers and attempted status coercion of even myself as a graduate student instructor to do whatever the athletic department wanted at any given time with students who were on either the football or basketball teams. Um, so seeing and experiencing those as a Canadian actually orients all of my work because it is, it is, it was at once foreign to me in terms of, of, of how this sort of environment operated. We don't have big time college sports in Canada, like the United States. There's um, no athletic scholarships. There's, you can't turn on the television on Saturday and see university sports in Canada. So going to the States and seeing that was, was um, sort of, uh, I, I wasn't used to that, but then I became an insider and I, it became normal to me as a, while I was there. So even when I was in my PhD and studying, uh, and, and studying things unrelated, I was learning what is now manifesting in my work and I was experiencing what's now manifesting in my work. Um, so I hope that answers your questions. There's a lot of differences, um, but there are also in increasingly similarities between the United States big time college sport and Canadian in, uh, inter-university sport that we can also get into if, if there's appetite for that. Yeah, I mean, uh, Derek really covered a lot of ground there. Um, and it's a, it's a great question. I do think it has um, a meaningful influence on the kind of work and analysis that we do um, because it is a tremendous contrast. And as a consequence of that contrast, there's a way in which um, it's really not naturalized for us, right? The, the, the whole college sports system, the power five system, there's nothing that feels natural or normal about it. 
Um, and that kind of, therefore, an inherent defamiliarization allows you to see everything about it that's sort of jarring and that kind of thing, the issues around exploitation and harm, they kind of pop to the surface because they're not being normalized via the mechanisms through the way in which meaning is inculcated and so forth. And you, you invest your own identity and it just feels like this is how sport and universities are supposed to operate, right? Um, and so, you know, I think from that standpoint, it, it, it has helped us really hone in on the sites of harm in, in college sport in the United States. But then the other thing is the insider piece, you know, I must say, you know, I followed sport, NCAA sport as a kid in Canada, you know, it was this exotic thing for us. We didn't have as much access to it. It wasn't on TV all the time. I would like, as a high schooler, I ended up getting a subscription to Sports Illustrated largely so I could get all that college sport content that I wanted and was so sad. If I could go, if I ever traveled to the States, getting a copy of USA Today was like so gratifying because it would give me this kind of college sports fix. So I thought I understood a lot about college sport in the United States. But then, um, so my experience in the Power Five was my time at Duke, which I was at Duke for six years. And I was teaching first year writing courses uh, on sport and ultimately on the labor of sport. And because there is no sociocultural study of sport at all academically at Duke, but because students identify Duke as a place they attend precisely because they perceive it to be Ivy plus sports, heard that over and over again, um, you can imagine that the students at Duke really want to talk about and think about sport. Um, and also, of course, the athletes at Duke. And, and Duke is fascinating as a Power Five school because it is a, almost a liberal arts college in terms of the size of its undergraduate population. And yet it has power five sports across the board. So that means that elite athletes comprise an enormous proportion of the overall undergraduate population at Duke, like almost to a wild degree. And that meant that I had a ton of these students, right, who are athletes in my classes year after year talking about uh, essentially having a consciousness raising workshop on college sports as they were entering their time in college sport. But I learned so much from them is the point I'm trying to make about the kind of the intricacies of the system, the things that are not immediately apparent when you put on your television and you see college sport, right? But what it means to be recruited, to be in a team environment, and also really the academic side of it, which we can come back to and almost never gets discussed. But the fact that like that the actual, we call them student athletes. I know we'll get to this. So what does their student experience actually mean, right? What does that student experience look like? And when you start to interrogate what the student experience of the student athlete looks like, it's one of the, honestly, one of the harshest indictments of the system as a whole, right? Because they can't even uphold that aspect of the sort of fabrication of the student athlete. That's, yeah, that's certainly... Um that's a big point there that we're hoping we can get into with the three of you regarding uh, exploitation, uh, to use that word in, in college sports. Uh, but while we're still on, you know, hearing uh, 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 Professor uh, Silva and Professor Common Lamb's point of view from the, you know, Canadian and, and U.S., I'm wondering if we could maybe add a dimension with uh, Dr. Mellis, your work in, you know, adding a historical uh, dimension, as well as, you know, the, the, the work in your experience looking at Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, and, and I think uh, Dr. Common Lamb mentioned, you know, the, the idea of maybe whitewashed history or, or a very Western uh, uh, biased uh, perspective on, on things and how sports, uh, how that comes up in sport and history of sport. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, 
my answer will kind of blend some of the sort of historical work that I do with kind of my personal experiences. And that, um, as you said earlier, I was a division one athlete and I was a swimmer at a school that no longer has a swimming program, which is quite common. Um, but I grew up in the nineties and the two thousands, um, as a, as a white female swimmer where, there were lots of whispers going around around about the East German doping program, which had just started, like people have been talking about it for decades, but the 90s is when the two Germanys reunite after the uh, Cold War. And so there was a really a major concerted effort by the reunified German state to discredit East Germany. And one of the most palpable ways to do this was by discrediting the East German state doping program, which was awful. It was awful. It was terrible. I'm not here to like apologize for it at all. But that was sort of the reference that was given to me time and time again of like, well, your experience, like you're, you're a woman and you're allowed to experience sport due to title nine. Like, look at these amazing opportunities we provide for you. And we also, we treat you very well. We don't like, we don't forcibly dope you the way the East Germans did. Um, and then I think of like all the sports movies that I watched growing up, remember the Titans and the Mighty Ducks movies, which we watched on like every single bus trip and like people chanting USA like me as well, very much tied up in like white nationalist U.S. rhetoric. Um, and and, and mean, meanwhile, in the background, there was a ton of like sexual harassment going on that I experienced, um, sexual abuse that I realized now was going on, um, lots of homophobia and racism. Swimming is a very white sport and we have episodes going on uh, that you, people can listen to um, to find out the history about that. And then so in graduate school, I came to this topic about sport um, in the Eastern Bloc, in part because I wanted to know what was life really like for athletes. Um, and I came into the project knowing that it was probably a lot more nuanced than what the kind of uh, public or popular images of in the U.S. Um, but I still was very much like, oh, you know, what was the secret police like and what was doping like? We can kind of all these questions that I had kind of been raised to hone in on as a white female American swimmer. Um, and what I found in my research, which was really and still is really rooted in these interviews that I did with athletes, was that, yes, there was doping in Hungary. There was not state doping. It was much more decentralized and diffused. Um, but it was also athletes also had a lot of moments of both like outward resistance, um, but as well as like real kind of cooperation with the state in terms of um, the state would give them things in return for them kind of behaving according to certain norms and rules. And what I found is that athletes had generally um, some positive memories about their lifetime and some negative ones. And so the real sort of ambivalence about what this uh, state socialist um, sports system gave them kind of made me question, you know, why do we have this narrative? that Eastern Bloc uh, sport was like all abusive, totally repressive, was horrible to athletes. And then in comparison, ours treats um, athletes totally differently. And so it really kind of became and still is a sort of self-reflective project where I'm sort of thinking, you know, why why was I raised to think this way? Why did I buy into it? And kind of why does this narrative um, may, are, continue to be maintained today? And this, while this was also going on was when the USA Gymnastics and the Larry Nassar scandal was really, really exploding in the news. And so I started really thinking, like, wow, there's so much that we are not talking about it within our own context about sexual abuse, obviously racism, obviously the Colin Kaepernick and all these 
you know, anti-racist protests going on within sports. Um, and so it's just sort of this process where over time I realized that my personal experiences in some ways, they don't map onto my research, but they're intimately tied to my research. And there's obviously a lot more nuance. And I think a historian would always say we have to ground our analyses in historical context. We have to actually listen to people in the past and not kind of brush with these broad brush strokes that make for like really clickbaity titles and stuff like that. But I would say um, what this has meant for the podcast and my experience on the podcast is that so much of kind of my learning and my kind of um, understanding of, of contemporary sports culture has just been this real self-reflective process where I'm also thinking about my own spirit experiences and kind of doing it on air, which is like really interesting and really challenging at times, the sort of thinking, this happened to me. I saw this happen. I participated in this. Why did I do that? And why did I not question what people were doing? Um, and so I think that's kind of um, where kind of my historical experience kind of, I think, adds to the podcast, but also the podcast really enriches my own historical work. Thank you. That I we we appreciate you uh, sharing your your perspective as a as a former Division One athlete, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, there's the wide breadth between the three of you as far as the your your fields and disciplines, but as well as you know the the perspective that you share uh, in your in your the pieces that you write and your and in your podcast as a former Division One athlete as professors who have worked closely with with these athletes and seen them in in classrooms which is something that so many people see them on TV screens or or on on billboards and you guys have the experience of of teaching them uh and and seeing them you know the next morning in their morning classes as well as perspective as uh, as fans of sports and and you you do uh you have talked about the sort of wrestling with these issues as as fans, and that's something I'm hoping we can discuss today too. Uh, but for now, I, I was hoping we could maybe shift shift topic a little bit in, as far as teasing out some of these these things that we've already started to talk about. Um, in particular, I think terminology is is good, and maybe a good starting point to 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 start with is. Uh, the importance or or the use of campus athletic workers the, that that term I think for some of our attendees and certainly um, for for myself when I when I came across your your the three of years work and the the podcast uh, getting adjusted to to this term as opposed to maybe student athlete so maybe we could talk about what what a campus what we mean when we say campus athletic worker and maybe why we're trying to move or why we're moving away from the, not moving away, but, you know, the, the critique of that term student athlete and maybe the history of that. Yeah. Tons to say here, tons to say on this topic. And even before I do, I actually want to, I want to pick up on one other thing that you said there, Eric, which was, I think really important with respect to the fact that these are our students, so to speak, or they are students. We're talking about college athletes and it really struck me during my time at Duke, right? When I would go on Twitter, let's say during the NCAA tournament, and of course, Duke is often the object of a lot of derision from fans of other institutions to see the way that 
professional folks, you know, it's what it's one thing if we're talking about other college students or whatever, you know, fine, people are going to talk about each other. But I'm talking about like professional people, people with a lot of status and power with respect to establishing discourse um, would just pile on the the choices, the performances of college athletes they're watching on television as if they had some kind of ownership over them, some kind of sense of entitlement to their work, to their performances. And, and the way I saw it was, well, you can't come into my writing seminar and scream at someone for not having a good topic sentence. We'd, we'd immediately understand that to be completely absurd and inappropriate and abusive. And yet that's exactly what's happening in the context of college sport, as long as it, is, as it remains at least putatively amateur, right? Or, or just to say, not treating people with the kinds of rights and privileges afforded to professionals in terms of comp compensation and working conditions and protections. And college athletes don't have any of those. And so for people to operate as if they do and that they're, they're entitled to speak about them in any way they want to in order to boost their own status, their their own platform, um, it's completely inappropriate, right? So so I, I really appreciate that you highlighted that because that's something I think as we move towards March Madness, actually, that we should all be thinking about all the time when it comes to college athletes. And that, and that brings us back to your question. So I attempted to coin the term campus athletic worker as a way of discursively reframing how we talk about college athletes for precisely these reasons. Clearly, the NCAA has spent decades attempting to legally enshrine the notion of amateurism, which is signified by the term student-athlete, as a way of evading workers' compensation claims and any other form of compensation for the athletes who produce, as we know, enormous amounts of revenue in college sport. My hope was that by insisting upon referring to college athletes as workers, we can reframe these commonsensical understandings around the supposed principle of amateurism by sort of hammering on that point and repeatedly refusing to accept the framing of the NCA, a very deliberate and legalistic framing. The other thing I think it's really important to keep in mind here, and this is something we've written about after speaking with college athletes, and this was, I think, underlined by both Johanna and Derek, but I want to come back to it. What we try to do in our journalistic work is that we try to speak to the college athletes who don't normally get spoken to in mainstream media. If you look at a Sports Illustrated sort, uh, article about a particular issue in college sport, uh, just to use them as a stand-in, they're, they're in no way unique. You'll see maybe 14 or 15 sources in a story, and that seems pretty good, until you realize that those sources are almost entirely, like perhaps exclusively, athletic department officials, coaches, other officials in the major conferences, right? But they are not talking to players because players don't trust them and don't want to speak to them. And so one thing we try to do is grant those athletes anonymity, which is, again, not a practice in mainstream journalism, but it's certainly an academic practice, in order to give them sort of the space to speak freely and openly. And when you do that, you learn a lot about the actual harsh realities of this system. And so one thing that we learned about in talking to them about this term student-athlete, which was doubled down upon and re-enshrined by the NCAA in its new constitution, despite the fact that the NLRB under general counsel Jennifer Abruzzo told them very explicitly that that term was a violation of labor law, right? But even with that context in mind, the NCAA doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on this term and then claimed that they did it because the college athletes asked them to. And that's what prompted us to speak to college athletes about how they understand and perceive this term. And we learned a lot that I think I, I want to share here. Um, the really insidious ideological dimension to the concept of student athlete is that 
Students do connect to this term. Students and athletes connect to the term because the demands placed upon them are so great. There is an understandable sense of identity with the term, an identity that is in turn consciously cultivated by the NCAA and by universities, which bombard the athletes with the term repeatedly each and every day. And so they come to interpolate themselves through it, right? They come to understand themselves through the concept of student athlete. It does make sense. It does compute. It does sound like who they are. The problem is that the athletes typically have no awareness of the instrumental value of amateurism to the universities and to the NCAA. The fact that it is actually very consciously being used to legally undermine their rights and extract the value that they produce from them. And so that, as a consequence of that, they're rather insidiously invited to invest in the very idea that justifies their exploitation. And I'll tell you, when they come to realize that, they're really pissed off. So I like to think of the term like campus athletic worker in that context as an alternative discursive project to hopefully challenge that ideological work being done by the college sports system. And, and I guess I'll just add a little bit to what, what Nathan has, has, has really articulated here. And, and that's, um, it might not be new, um, but in 1964, the first executive director of the NCAA, Walter Byers, literally coined this pseudo-legal term, student-athlete, as explicitly a way to prevent college athletes from claiming workman's compensation, work person's compensation. So it was very explicitly from its foundation. Um, so it might mean something different today. We can talk about that. But from its literal foundation, it was meant to prevent uh, workers from receiving employment rights um, and health and safety rights and uh, all of the rights that we think um, should be enshrined in, in most of the workforce. But yet this area of the workforce we somehow are okay with and that's where it gets sort of intertwined with this concept of amateurism at large that that these aren't professionals aka um ask a, a college a campus athletic worker whether or not they think that they are professional or the demands of the job are different than a pro professional um uh, a, a job and they will tell you that uh, the demands are great um, and I think part of the discursive shift from um, the uh, the slur of student athlete to uh, the campus athletic worker is also um, student athlete is used to quash mobilization and solidarity. It's quite literally a concept used to prevent athletes from thinking that they need to work to get better working conditions, right? It's, oh, we're just students, we're young, we're kids. Like those types of discourses that permeate college sport are all used to prevent students from speaking up with the voices that they have. Campus athletic worker, on the other hand, is very purposeful in terms of its attempt to empathize mobilization and solidarity. We're all workers. If we're all workers, we should be working together and have solidarity and fight for the rights that we should have. So I think that's like a, a let's call it a, a latent um, uh, aspect of this kind of shift in discourse. Yeah, I think the just real quick, the one thing I would add is just um, kind of really to reinforce Nathan's point that how much it is like drilled into students, uh, into students, into students who are athletes, that they are student athletes. 
is that um, there's this sense of they they, t- they teach you to be very proud. Like if if you are the successful student athlete, like if you are an excellent student as well as an excellent athlete, or if you happen to excel in the classroom and maybe you're a mediocre athlete, whatever, you are propped up as an example and like the example that everyone shoot for. We all know that when it comes to um, academic preparation and intellectual development, that so much of these two things are really influenced by race, class, gender, where you live, and all of these um, structural um, opportunity, structural avenues of discrimination and opportunity that are really baked into the structural discrimination of the U.S. Um, but like me, for example, I was not a straight A student, but um, I did graduate cum laude and I was very much held up as like, oh, look, Johanna is like the ideal model. And I love that. Like when I was in college, I felt so badass. I was really, really excited because this is what I was taught to feel. And I and I sit, tell people I was very much raised to be like a good little worker, be capitalist. And, um, and part of the process of this podcast has been very much me unlearning that that over time. Um, but I was like held up and I, w- I was a student athlete representative for the NCAA at my school. I have a sweatshirt that I haven't worn in a long time that says like student athlete rep. And I was so proud of that. And I just think it's, it's easy for us to kind of discount and be like, oh, you know, like people are just, you know, they just, they're just sort of like bootlickers and like, okay, maybe they are, but this is the environment that athletes are literally trained and indoc- I say indoctrinated to believe from the moment that they begin youth sports. Like we are talking about it in terms of a college atmosphere. This begins when you're five years old and maybe even younger. Um, And we had a really interesting episode recently about how youth sport is really focused on like capitalist competitive sport and not on like sport for play that we could get into later. Um, But really it is something that by the time you get to college, if you've been an athlete, like I started a swimming year round on a club team when I was eight years old, I was doing doubles by the time I was 13, which is wild. Um, I had been training to be a good little worker bee uh, student athlete for 10 years by the time I got to college. So you can get a sense of like how hard it is to root out this thinking um, amongst uh, college athletes. Thank you. Yeah, it's very valuable to 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 hear those perspectives. And I should emphasize that it's extremely valuable because as as each of you have mentioned, the the extent that you've worked with these campus, these college campus athletic workers and interviews and and speaking with them on issues that, again, I, I think we've all um, all three of you have hit on that. This isn't something that we see in mainstream sports media. Uh, very often. Um, I I thought kind of going off of, you know, that terminology, I think uh, it would be helpful to talk a little bit about the traditional sort of the traditional model of athletic scholarships. And, And there, I think there's growing, it can be said that there's growing discourse on the fact that uh, not, Obviously, not all student or campus athletic workers are on uh, at these athletic scholarships, right? And and there's not there's there's discourse on the fact that not all of them are are, are receiving receiving that. But even for the ones who are receiving uh, scholarship, there's often in maybe the public's eye this idea that they're being given so much, and you know they need to you, you know realize the 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 value of that but I, I think when we when we're talking about 
the the shortcomings of of you know student athlete and and emphasizing that they're students. I think Dr. Silva talked about the limitations that that is inflicting on these individuals as far as their mobility and their ability to uh, bargain and 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 uh, you know advocate for themselves in a way. Uh, I was wondering if if uh, we we could talk a little bit about the shortcomings of that traditional kind of mindset or culture in college sport. Yeah, so I'll start with this one just to kind of provide a little bit of background on like amateurism as a political ideological ideal. Um, and then I'll let the guys get more into the nitty gritty of scholarships because that's a bit more in their wheelhouse. Um, I think it's really important to remember or to know that that concept of amateurism in its current form is very much a modern conception. Um, and I'm going to get into like some history here. But um, in the 1800s um, in, in, in Imperial Britain, like in, in the British mainland, um, basically this idea of amateurism was redefined by middle um, and upper class um, colonial officials and people in Britain as a way to keep working class uh, British athletes out, outside of sport so that these middle um, and upper middle class um um, capitalists that they could dominate the sport realm. And so they see these working class boxers, working class football, soccer players who are gaining more and more prestige that are winning more games that are able to make more money. And we have these upper upper class people saying, oh, well, well, wait, we don't want to actually compete with them on the same level because they can defeat us and they can actually maybe make more money than we can through sports. And so they redefine this um, Greek uh, concept of amateurism. Um, in order to keep working class people out. And I really want to emphasize the imperialist aspect of it because this is like the height of the British Empire as the British are taking control of India, parts of uh, other parts of Southeast Asia. Um, South Africa is increasingly becoming a racial apartheid place. And so it's not only is there this class element, which a lot of the scholarship focuses on the class and the gendered element, but it's deeply rooted in scientific racism about these ideas of like, well, there are certain people that are not intellectually as intellectually developed as we are in a capitalist sense, but they um, have a, a, a fear, a, a sheer physical strength that is greater than we are. And they can defeat us and we do not want that. And so it very much much ties into ideas of uh, being used to justify enslavement, to be, being used to justify racial capitalism. And then what happens, as Derek kind of mentioned earlier, is that um, in the 20th century, this idea of amateurism, which was firmly rooted in the International Olympic Committee and the Olympic Games, which becomes an international concept, um, in, the, in the mid-1900s, during both the Cold War and during um, as universities are being forced to be segregated, this idea of the student athlete is being used again to specifically exclude not only workers' compensation, but also workers' compensation against the increasing numbers of, of black athletes that are finally being allowed to participate in college sport. Um, and so I really want to emphasize kind of this historical trajectory because we tend to fo focus on it in terms of a contemporary sense, a 20th century sense, and a class sense but it really has these like imperialist roots that make perfect sense when we think about our global history. Yeah. Okay. So that, that was really the, the perfect way to kind of enter into this conversation. That, that was such a comprehensive assessment of the history. And now, you know, as a, as a sociologist, I'm going to step in and say, all right, so what does it look like today? Right. Um, and that's what Johanna has been building us to. And what it looks like today is really, really ugly. Okay, we have to start from a simple fact. 
many universities, what we're calling power five universities at the very least, we can go way beyond it, but it's cut and dry and it's crystal clear and as simple as can be. If you're thinking about power five universities, the big conferences, and the, these are mostly research one R one universities, large public universities for the most part with some, with some very well-established privates sprinkled in. These universities produce a tremendous amount of revenue in athletic departments through college sport. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue every year. Well, these universities are technically nonprofit institutions, there are plenty of people being compensated directly as a consequence of that revenue. And we always have to keep that in mind because there's perpetually this idea, listen, we balance our budgets. There's no profit here, right? We have to, we have these huge budgets and expenses that we have to pay. We're in the, we're in the red, right? Actually, our universe, we're losing money on college sport. What are you talking about all this? Stuff? No. Okay. Because Athletic department officials, coaches, and other members of the staff only exist because college athletes are doing the work of producing the commodity spectacle that is college sport. And because they are doing that work and producing that value, many, many other people have very lucrative jobs that would not and could not exist without that work. And so that money that looks like it's balanced, that looks like they're in the red, that's precisely because of people being directly paid for this work. And those people are not the athletes who are doing the work, right? And since that revenue is being produced through the labor of players, it means we're talking about an incredibly clear cut, to use that word, case of exploitation in the truest possible sense of the word, right? Scholarships quite simply are not commensurate with the value being produced by college athletes. And that's why it's exploitative. But there's another piece I want to get into here. And we could really talk all day, each of us on this topic. So Derek's being kind to me to let me go on even more here. Um, then there's the question of what that compensation that they do receive actually looks like, right? Because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about scholarships. You mentioned this, Eric. Not all, but many of these athletes receive scholarships. And the universities will tell you that's a tremendous amount of money. But what we are really talking about Okay, and we got to be clear on this. When we're talking about scholarships, we're talking about constant compensation via education. The education, I don't care about the word scholarships. I don't care about the monetary value attached to that. That's just BS made up by the institution. Okay, what we're actually talking about is the educational experience that athletes receive as a wage in return for the athletic labor that they're performing. So then we're forced to ask, if we take the college sports system at face value, are athletes receiving the education that they are promised by these institutions? And so again, this is just accepting the premise that they are being compensated, which I don't accept. But if I were to accept that premise, I want to ask that question. Are they receiving the education that they're promised? And as you might anticipate, the answer here too is no. Why not? This is a big one uh, and we can get it more into it, but I want to at least give you just a little snapshot of why the answer is no. We have to think about a number of practices that systematically, which is to say structurally occur at power five institutions that prevent even the athletes who are most ardently committed to the so-called student athlete vision, who are desperate to get an education in return for the athletic labor. Even those students who want most of all to receive an educational experience are systematically denied the education that they're promised. Why? One is the practice of what's called academic clustering. Academic clustering refers to the, the, the practice within athletic departments of steering athletes away from majors they want to take because those often STEM-like majors are perceived to be too onerous, too time-consuming, too demanding. So we have athletes who are literally recruited to 
technical institutions, right? Institutions that emphasize the sciences and engineering precisely because they will sell the athlete on the vision they're going to receive this world-class education in, a, let's say, a STEM field. I teach sociology. I'm not actually fetishizing STEM fields here, but I'm just saying that's how it's perceived, okay? They're sold that vision that they're going to get that STEM degree. And then when they arrive, the coach is like, absolutely not. There's no time for that. You're not taking engineering. There was never a chance you were taking engineering, right? So it's a lie, and they're not getting the education that they wanted, that they tried to sign up for. Then we have the question of practice time, right? Practice time always comes first. We're told student athlete, but it's always athlete student, which means that you build your academic schedule around your athletic schedule. And that means you literally cannot take classes if they conflict with your athletic obligations. And that's to say nothing of the fact that we have athletes traveling all through the semester, right? And look at what's happening now. UCLA and USC are in the Big Ten now, right? So that means that we have athletes going from Rutgers to Los Angeles in the middle of the week, the academic week. What does that look like in practice for them when it comes to their educational experiences? I'll tell you because I was at Duke, right? And I know what it looks like. It looks like me going to bed at midnight, watching students in my class on television on ESPN. And that student is presenting in the morning in my class the next day, somehow. Okay. That's what, that's what that experience looks like for these so-called student athletes in practice. They don't have access to internships and study abroad programs, which are, by the way, built into tuition at a place like Duke. That's why tuition is so high. That's why the scholarship is so valuable, supposedly, precisely because you are paying for those opportunities, which are denied, right? Which is to say your networking opportunities then are denied. Um, this is nothing to say the fact that athletes are encouraged to take remote courses, which we can debate about the value of remote courses. Clearly there is value to remote learning, but it's not the same as in-person learning. So if they're being steered away from it, they're getting something different. And the last thing I want to say is there's the fatigue question. If you are working 40 hours a week at sports, right on a football field where your brain is being bludgeoned every single day repeatedly, how alert are you going to be in the classroom? If you're falling asleep in the classroom, that's not a function of disengagement, which is what the athletic department at Duke University told faculty was the problem for student athletes. The problem was that they were not engaged enough. No, the problem is it's not physically possible to be engaged under those circumstances. And all of this is to say nothing of issues around academic dishonesty and corruption, right? The point is that structurally, this is wage theft. Yeah, and I'll just add one of the one of the things that I experienced at South Carolina and Nathan kind of just articulated was I was in my third year of PhD teaching classes. I thought I was overworked. I was teaching three classes while trying to finish a, a PhD uh, per semester. And I, it's 1230 at night and I turn on my television and I see one of the revenue generating sports from the University of South Carolina on my television. And I'm like, oh, is this a replay? No, it's not a replay. Oh, where is this? Oh, it's halfway across the country. And then I look closer and I'm like, three or four of these athletes are in my class tomorrow morning at 8.30. And they showed up. And right then I knew that something was messed up. This makes no sense. And I've got colleagues um, colleagues that, that should be respected um, in, in other uh, avenues and other areas. I have colleagues suggesting these these folks, these students are disengaged and not and they don't care about school. And, and as Nathan put, it's impossible to care about school in a in a context like that. So just adding that, and I think what's wrong with the model currently, uh, and again, Nathan pointed this out, is 
campus athletic workers have very little access to a lot of the things that make the so-called student experience that is sold to students that make that possible. Internships, you mentioned, work-study programs, work-abroad programs. Do you think a football player can go travel to Italy for two months in the summer? No, um, because that that uh, campus athletic worker has to be on the field for two-a-days. Um, this all made impossible fundamentally because of athletics. Not, not anything else, not working to, to make a living, nothing else. Athletics interferes with the education. So if they're one form of permissible remunerative benefit from this exchange is the education from the exchange of their athletic labor, then that is full wage theft. Any interruption, any challenge, any barrier to receiving the full an unabated educational experience is a form of wage theft. I often think, and again, Nathan said this, I often uh, make the analogy of you get a job, you're a 20-something-year-old, you get a job at Google, you sign up, they tell you you're going to make 200 k a year. Sounds wonderful. Sounds great. And then you show up to work, you work for a couple weeks, and then you get your paycheck, and they've paid you, not in dollars, They've paid you in the latest and greatest Google NFT that is worth, who knows what it's worth. Could be worth more, could be worth less. Who knows? It's a moving, fluctuating thing. We would not agree to that. We would not agree to that sort of situation under any circumstance because it is a form of wage theft. Uh, you've agreed to one thing and you're getting another. So that's what's wrong with this like education oh it's great oh it's a it's a great kind of remunerative exchange it's simply not yeah i'd, I'd love to jump in again um like like nathan said we could talk about this all day which is why we have over 100 episodes on this topic um but i think you know i think one a couple other things to consider right is that not like most athletes are not on a full scholarship you know, like I was a swimmer at a very low level D1 school and I'm still paying off my loans to be a college athlete. I mean, I'm hoping that like whatever the 10K gets, you know, um, removed by the government, we'll see what happens with our, you know, Supreme Court system. I'm not banking on that. Right. But how many athletes are doing all of this and still taking out loans in order to be a college athlete? Because, again, they've been trained and indoctrinated to think that this is the successful way to live your life. Um, and the other thing I would say, um, and I know I keep like bringing the history into it is that, um, there are other, I know we're going to talk about NIL name it, image likeness in a, in a minute, but there are other ways to do this and it's people's inability. And in some cases, outright refusal to imagine that there might be another way to structure this. And there are many different ways that we could think about actually paying athletes for their labor. Um, and this is where my research, I think can play a role in some of this, um, not as the only model and not to say that, um, um, the model of state socialist sport is perfect because it is fundamentally imperfect, just like our capitalist sports system is. But one thing is that the, the, the government's actually paid their athletes a living wage. They didn't pay them these like enormous wages. They were not the most wealthy people in their society, but they actually were paid and treated as workers. Um, and the thing is, is that they actually had to hide. One of the things I found in my research is I had a really hard time finding actual concrete archival documents 
stating how much athletes were paid by the companies that they competed for because every workplace or sorry, every sport club was attached to an industry or workplace. And so athletes were paid not directly from the government, even though the money came from there, they were paid by um, the workplace attached to their, uh, sorry, the industry attached to their sport club. Um, but the reason why the money could not come directly from the government is because of the IOC's amateur rules, because the IOC forbade athletes from being paid for their athletic labor. So these state social systems had to comprise a different kind of secretive way to pay athletes. And the only reason why, the only way that I found this out was through interviews by speaking with athletes. And some of them remembered the specific amounts they were paid by, um, by the sport clubs. And again, the sport clubs got their money from the government because everyone got their money from the government in some way. So I think it's really, really key when we think about, you know, what is wrong and critiquing our college sports them. And it's not just college sports. This is also Olympic sports. I think I think Olympic athletes need to be paid by their governments. I think we're seeing a great case in Canadian sport right now, where athletes across many, many, many different sports are, 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 are trying to get their government to address the wide systemic abuse that's going on. And because they are not considered um, employees, they have no collective bargaining rights. They have no way to really actively agitate for workers' compensation, for um, any kind of like healthcare or anything. And so they're basically left to fend for themselves, which makes it so hard for athletes to actually get any of the things they deserve. Um, so yeah, I think we we need to kind of look back into history and also reimagine what might this actually look like. And it seems really scary, but again, it's not impossible. And we need to actually stretch our brains to do that. Yeah, thank you. That's the, that was an excellent sort of uh, you know thirty thousand uh, foot look at this this conversation of amateurism and and compas compensation in in sport and, and and kind of the I know you guys have an episode on the myth of of amateurism and I, I think that's really important and I'm glad that we could we could touch on that. Um, just a note on terminology. I apologize. I, I brought up the term without maybe we have attendees or, or audience members unfamiliar with the term power five institution, uh, just being the five highest uh, revenue generating uh, conferences in, in college football. Uh, we have the uh, ACC, uh, what is it? ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12 and the SEC. So these are uh, and it's important. It's important too to talk about this right now. And we're in February, and we're we're coming up on the uh, the big college college basketball will be everywhere. And and so so just a note on terminology. Uh, we've we've talked about now. We've had we've had mention in the conversation of amateurism, and I think it's important to the history too of amateurism and the you know student athlete and just college sport dialogue the uh, racial capital. And uh, I know that uh, Dr. Common Lamb, you have an excellent interview in an episode with uh, Joshua Myers uh, on racial capital. And uh, I, I thought it would be, th this is maybe a good segue into conversations about uh, the plantation dynamic in college, American college sport. Another topic that you've, ex you, you, the three of you explored in an episode, as well as a piece for the Guardian, um, including interviews with with, uh, with with campus athletic workers, and something that I, I believe Dr. Mellis, all three of you have hit on today, 
the, the, the topic of revenue generation. And we have something that's undeniable is the, the sports uh, generating the highest revenue and the makeup of, of athletes in those sports. And another thing that we've talked about is the ability of those of the athletes in those sports to, again, capitalize or be able to reap the, the compensation of education. And something you talk about in that episode is the difference between gem, gen, revenue generating sports and non-revenue generating sports. Maybe we could kind of talk more about this going, going in, focusing on uh, the racial capital aspect and the planta plantation dynamic. Yeah. So, I mean, there is, of course, a tremendous amount to say on this topic, but I think that what I really want to underline here, since we don't have so much time, is is just to try to point out how stark and clear cut a case college sport is, uh, high revenue college sport is, of structural racism in the United States today. And what I think we should really understand in, in a very clear cut terms as a racial transfer of wealth. Okay, because as you know, as Victor Ray tells us in, in his work on racialized organizations, right, we want to be thinking about race as connected to resources and resource distribution. Race becomes real when it becomes a mechanism through which resources are allocated to different people, right? Based on the status. It's a social construction, but it becomes a very, very real reality when it is connected to resources and distribution. And what is the NCAA but that? We have a system, first of all. So let me just try to sort of trace it through. First of all, we really try to emphasize that you should be understanding participation in college sport, especially a sport like football, as as fueled by what we call structural coercion, okay, as opposed to the, the general narrative is people sign up to participate, right? But the question is always, and this is as a sociologist, you're going to want to ask this question, what are the conditions under which people exercise their agency or become choice making agents, right? What conditions shape and constrain the choices that they make? And the conditions are the structural racism and white supremacy of US society, a society built on the extraction of wealth from racialized people, right? And the transfer of that wealth forward through time. So the fact that we have a society that systematically continues to deny access to resources and higher education, right? Based on race, based on geography and the spatial dynamics of race. That means that when an opportunity is held forth, right? An opportunity like participation in football and the fact that football will open a door to an institution of higher education that otherwise might be closed, right? That there are opportunities for um, access to wealth and resources that have been denied to one's family. It is actually not a choice, right? It's, it's the only decision to participate in football and get that access to opportunity. One isn't a dupe to make that choice. This isn't like someone being conned and not understanding what's at stake. I'm not trying to frame people in those terms. I think that people, and having spoken to athletes, fully understand that they are making a sacrifice, right? And they're afraid of the harm that will come to them through football. And they know that they're taking a toll on their lives, but they also know what they are doing for their family members and for others in their community. And it's worth it to them to make that sacrifice of self, right? But that's not a free agent. That is someone who is shaped and constrained by coercive forces. So we have to understand participation in the college sports system, first of all, by being shaped by racial capitalism itself. Then there's the question of how racial capitalism operates within the college sports system. Uh, and the economist Ted Tatos and, and Hal Singer did a really wonderful job of, of quantifying for us the racial transfer of wealth that occurs in the NCAA annually. And I don't have the numbers in front of us, but they, they, um, 
They estimated at approximately 1.1, I think, to $1.3 billion a year transfers from black athletes specifically to white figures in the college sports system. And this is because of the massively disproportional participation of black athletes in the highest revenue producing sports. Athletes otherwise denied access right, to predominantly white institutions that define the Power Five conferences, right? But when it comes to athletes, the number, the admission is way higher. So the proportion of Black athletes is really high at these institutions. But when you look at the, the demographic figures for coaches, presidents, athletic department officials, these numbers, not only are they predominantly white, we can expect that. They are also disproportionately white, right? Even in a majority white country, they are disproportionately white in these fields, which means that the people who are doing the work being sacrificed on these fields are black disproportionately, and the people who are benefiting are white disproportionately. And that's a clear-cut example of the racial transfer of wealth and how racial capitalism manifests through college sport. And then, and this might be something that, that Derek wants to talk more about, so I'll throw it to him in a second, but let's think of some examples of what the actual experience now, like the qualitative experience of athletes is when they walk through these spaces that are predominantly white spaces, right, in which they're coded as athletes. Let's talk about BYU right? And the experience that black athletes have been having at BYU in the last year. BYU doesn't want us to have this conversation. They vociferously deny it. But what we hear from athletes like Rachel Richardson, the volleyball player at Duke University, who says that she was subjected to the N-word while she was playing at uh, BYU. What we heard when we talked to athletes in other sports at BYU was that they were also subjected to the N-word, right? So these are the environments that people have to operate, racialized people have to operate in order to supposedly reap these great benefits being offered to them by the college sports system. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add some some of the specifics that Nathan um, was referencing when, when it comes to how, how college revenue-generating sport operates on the basis of, of racial capitalism. And that's in the Power Five um, athletic departments, which Eric, you did a great job um, uh, mentioning and, and operationalizing for us. 75% of athletic directors 83% of associate athletic directors, uh, 80% of assistant athletic directors are white. Uh, in terms of coaching, 80% of head, head men's basketball coaches, 81% of head women's basketball coaches, and 80% of head football coaches in the Power Five are white. And importantly, um, despite the enormous pool of Black assistant coach candidates, the revenue generated in big-time college sport continues to be distributed disproportionately to white people in leadership positions. Um, black assistant coaches are often overlooked, and we can tell from the data um, that there are a, there's an enormous pool of candidates for those jobs that get overlooked for other coaches. Uh, according to the USA Today in 2018-19, the top 10 college athletic departments earned between 157 and $223 million in revenue. Each of the top 10 college football coaches make over $6 million per year. And more importantly, and this is often overlooked, coaches have massive, massive buyout clauses should they not do their job, should they get fired to not do their job. So this is actually an inverse relationship to the professional leagues where you see someone like LeBron James who's able to make $50 million and a coach who might makes one or two. 
In this case, with the systematic wage theft that uh, is occurring, you're taking revenue from a disproportionately Black population, Black and racialized population, and giving it to folks um, disproportionately who are white. Um, uh, to add uh, a couple of other numbers that are important, economist David Barry has estimated that players at elite power five school, that an elite power five school like Duke basketball players uh, have an economic value of $4.3 million per year. Um, so that is money being uh, systematically exploited. And I think an even more um, robust and, and striking number um, from that Ted Tatos and Hal um, Singer estimate is that Black football and men's and women's basketball athletes at D1, Division One Power 5 schools have lost approximately 17 to $21 billion in compensation from 2005 to 2019. That is systematic racial capitalism built into the core of sports, its plantation dynamics um, to the core. Um, and it's clear that the primary beneficiaries of this ex, uh, economic exploitation uh, of campus athletic workers, the coaches, the athletic directors, the universities, still control the revenue generated from that athletic labor. So we can talk about name image likeness um, and for those who might uh, not be aware, name, image, likeness, uh, uh, apparently or supposedly this is the emancipatory age where campus athletic workers can finally be paid. But there are so many problems with that. And I, I know we'll get into that. But where it comes into racial capitalism and why this is still a racial capitalist system is that even in this so-called emancipatory era where folks can go out and get paid as much as they like, the athletic labor, the revenue from that athletic labor is still controlled by the university. What the universities have done successfully with name, image, likeness is get private enterprise to subsidize what they should be paying. They should be paying revenue splits with their campus athletic workers, but name, image, likeness allows them to get private enterprise to pay for their labor pool. They still have a monopsony on that labor pool. They still have control in every real way, except they can now get Chick-fil-A um, or Pennzoil or Joe's Chicken Shop to pay for their um, for, for their uh, athletic labor. And we'll get into it in a few moments, I, I'm sure. But even that payment will not be proportionate, will not be um, uh, disconnected from racial capitalism. And there will still be inequalities, inequities, and disparities between men and women, for instance, between folks who uh, transgress sexual uh, the sexual continuum um, to racialize folks. There will still be that sort of racial capitalist structure in how those folks get paid. So what we often talk about, we this is a, a microcosm of racial capitalism at large. Collegial, collegiate sport is, is not the only racial capitalist system. Society is racial capitalism. So anything within it will also be um, uh, uh, constructed on that sort of uh, with that structure at play. 
Yeah, I think I think one other example I just wanted to add, and people who know the podcast and or follow my Twitter know that I got my PhD at the University of Florida. So I am like constantly on them for and on Florida politics for all of these, all of the the fascism that's going on there. Um, another example of of how racial capitalism is really at the foundation, obviously, of our society, but of college sport is what's going on in Florida. So Florida, um, I think last week or the week before, I can't remember, passed a new name image likeness bill, which I know we're going to get into. But I just wanted to note the way that this bill was like presented in sports media and or in the media and sports media is it was presented. Um, there was a picture of Ron DeSantis, governor, GOP governor of Florida. And next to him was Scott Strickland, who is the athletic director for University of Florida, um, as well as uh, football coach Billy Napier. They also had six athletes in the picture with them for this historic signing of this bill. And I need to look into who the athletes are. Um, University of Florida is known for a lot of things as a major, major sports program. Um, a couple of years ago, it's uh, men, it's women's football coach Cam Neubauer. It was found out that he was abusing his athletes, largely uh, black female basketball players through physical, mental and racial discrimination. And Strickland um, just let it slide for years. And basically there was no kind of um, there was no kind of uh, punishment or penalty, anything about him. Um, but the fact that these um, white uh, football, this white football coach, white athletic director were sitting next to Ron DeSantis who has banned the AP uh, Black History um, uh, class and exam for being taken. He just passed yesterday a bill which basically removes tenure from any from from professors at universities that are funded by the state. He has demanded the universities collect and send him information on the tran on transgender students at their schools. Um, there's so much more that's going on. And again, I rant to rave about it on, on, on Twitter because it's just really, really awful, but it's full on fascism. And it is allowed to thrive because of the racial capitalist structure of, of college sport, which is um, intimately tied to our university system and our society. Um, so yeah, I just really wanted, I just think that picture was like so representative of the fact that we have this strain within college sport. And then it becomes even more amplified and entrenched due to um, the fascism that's going on there. And also Democrats just really twiddling their fingers and not doing anything to stop it. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point on really uh, contemporary current issues going on right now. And unfortunately, we're we're seeing it uh, play out. Um, I think I think at uh, the time we have for maybe two more questions. Uh, I think first we've, we, you know, we were, we talked and mentioned uh, the name image likeness uh, decision and it's recent uh, you know, it, it, it's had a place in headlines. And I think uh, a lot of people are, are, would say they're familiar somewhat with, with what it's meant. Uh, but I think, you know, to Dr. Silva's point about, and I know the three of you have talked extensively about it and, and the, you know, repercussions that it could have, uh, but the point about it shifting uh, sort of responsibility or, you know, the, so where the source of this compensation or what this compensation will look like, I think for a lot of people, they think, well, now now athletes are being compensated. Uh, right. Uh, but in reality, it's it's for uh, for these promotions and for these, uh, you know, the name image, you know, the, using their name and their image. Uh, you guys, the three of you have also written on similar and maybe less known uh, efforts or or initiatives in the NCAA for academic 
performance compensation. Uh, I, I was wondering if we could talk about those two areas, NIL and, and you know, this idea of academic uh, compensation uh, as, you know, maybe a pushback as far as, you know, what what these mean, you know, to, to people who hear them and think that this is this would be a positive uh, initiative and and maybe to get things going. I know you guys in your show, you talk about a lot. A lot of it, what it seems like is more work is being put on the initial already extremely demanding job of being on these teams and 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 competing and, and being an athlete and how really they're not being compensated for that work now we're creating new requirements whether it be being able to be popular enough or, or go out and get a deal through nil or or you know performance in a classroom now being scrutinized in another way that compensation is tied to it yeah i, I mean I, I think a lot of really important points have already been made. Um, so I, I don't want to belabor them, but I, I maybe we'll underline a few things. So the first thing is, as it's come up in this conversation, I think we have to understand name, image, and likeness uh, as an inherent right, right? That should that should be enjoyed by all human beings, uh, certainly within a, a free market economy of capitalism. Like, do I believe in the free market? No, I don't. But within a society like this, uh, why are any people within that society being prohibited from engaging in promotional work they want to engage in, right? So it was a, a patently unjust provision within the NCAA's amateurism logic. And of course, athletes should have the capacity to monetize their NIL if that's their choice. But to me, the NIL is a fig leaf for all that it is ill in the NCAA. I was actually arguing years before this legislation was passed, NIL legislation, that this would be an optimal outcome for these universities, right? They were fighting it, but actually it's an optimal outcome for them because what employer would not want to see their workers paid by an external entity? This is what Derek was saying. And further, now they have to cover to make the claim that in fact, these campus athletic workers are paid, which is the point that you were making, Eric. Um, so in these senses, I'm very wary of viewing NIL as a solution to any of the issues in college sport. And then that brings us to the next thing you were talking about. And I, and I think this is a really important thing that is never in the conversation whatsoever. The, the sort of moral panics around NIL that seem to be complete, co consistently reproduced in the mainstream media. NIL is compensation for promotional labor, right? Which is to say that it requires more work. And that is work that detracts from both athletic and academic responsibilities both of which are far more enriching for young people than promotional work that actually further interpolates them into a neoliberal logic of gig work and the commodification of the self. Things that I frankly do not think that higher education should be teaching our young people, right? But yet these become the mode, through, the only mode through which they can realize any of the value that they are producing through the labor that they are already doing. Um, so, you know, and, and I think that we have the same kind of issues associated with the academic compensation you're talking about, which is a very tokenistic way of supposedly rewarding some of the work that athletes are doing to, to sort of re-enshrine the student-athlete model by suggesting, oh, you're doing academic work, therefore you can get a small measure of compensation for it, something like $6,000 a year, which is just like the tiniest drop in the bucket of the value that's actually being produced by these athletes. Um, and in fact, many universities who have the opportunity to pay that 
uh, academic wage have chosen not to, right? So I think that that's really important to keep in mind. Uh, it, it also raises an issue, which I think we will be seeing more of, which is the fact that as states like California attempt to pass legislation to further compensate college athletes, an effort which I you know, largely stand behind in, in principle, although I think it should be coming more from the down, from, from, from below, as opposed to from above, which is to say through athlete organization and unionization and bargaining, as opposed to legislation from above. However, you know, legislation from above of the right to compensation would seem to be a beneficial development, except that if you look closely at most of these pieces of legislation that are being brought forward, especially in California, what you will see is that they are tied to academic performance. There's this way in which, well, a lot of these wages will be held in trust for the athlete until the moment where they graduate from their degree. And again, this is fundamentally unjust. There's no reason why the athletic work that they are already doing and the value they are already producing should in any way be connected to their academic performance, which is so profoundly constrained as, a result, as we've already seen, which will ultimately not necessarily be realized in many cases, right? Because a lot of college athletes will not ultimately graduate, and that's not something that should be held against them, right? That's probably a failing of the school, and it might be an athletic outcome, which is to say that they, for those in the high revenue sports, they choose to leave early because they have better athletic um, opportunities and professional opportunities ahead of them, but why should they not receive compensation for the three years they already played, right? In fact, the player who has the opportunity to leave early is probably the one most responsible for the value being produced for that institution precisely because they're good enough to move on. And yet they're being denied that according to this model. So that's something we have to be, I think, very cognizant of moving forward. Yeah, I think to to add... Uh, just to underscore what Nathan is saying here, NIL to me is is the Uberization of college athletics um, when it comes to to gig work. It, it it basically is is it allows campus athletic workers to go and seek out gigs as much as as they want. And um, I, I am also with Nathan in terms of my. Uh, I'll, I'll decry that development in society at large um, uh, because it it allows um, the universities and our remember the NCAA is made up of member institutions. Like we tend to think of the NCAA as like over here and universities over here. No, they are they are one. It allows universities to to quash conversations about health and safety, about education and compensation. Uh, it allows them an out if you will. So as Nathan was saying, in many ways, like NIL favors universities more than the folks who are, uh, um, the folks who are, whose athletic labor, uh, is, uh, is generating revenue because they get to keep the revenue. Um, and, and as Nathan mentioned, private enterprise kind of, um, uh, takes that over. But I think it's also important to, again, underscore what we were talking about earlier, um, that NIL does absolutely nothing to change the fact that, the demands of education or of the athletic department make it so education is an impossibility for many campus athletic workers. We cannot, NIL does nothing to change those dynamics. So if we're talking about um, alternative forms of payment, and if we talk about like even like, uh, even uh, like uh, in addition, stipend, whatever, any other form of payment, if it assumes that someone has a window in which they can get their degree, it is always going to fail from the fact that you cannot do both of these two 
things at once. You cannot be a star football player and learn. So the only, the only solution to this is lifetime scholarships, period. End of story. That you can return to university at any point in your history or in your life to complete the degree in which you were promised unabated by university. So that's actually an existential threat to the NCAA because then if you offer that to every campus athletic worker, these are no longer students when they're playing. It is quite literally, they become professional athletes. They're paid by an external source. They do not go to school. So you can't even hold up this notion, this idea that they are students first and athletes second. The whole system comes crumbling down if you allow quote like lifetime scholarships because in practice college athletes will not go many will not be students they might not even be living in the town in which the the university is who knows they might go off but the only solution to the fact that uh or the or the only thing you can provide students uh campus athletic workers with in order to to alleviate the pressure is lifetime scholarships so the ncaa knows this so again, this is what I'm trying to paint this picture of how NIL is actually being used as cover for universities so that they don't have these pay for play conversations when in reality, at the end of the day, that's the only the only way forward uh, is pay for play. So when folks are propping up NIL as this like overarching positive thing, like absolutely, these rights heretofore denied should be granted. Anyone should be able to go seek out their market value uh, for their name, image, likeness, the, the by just focusing on that, you ignore the fact that NIL is being used to sustain this system, period. End of story. Yeah, I think uh, kind of one example that I would add that we didn't even get around to talking about in the podcast as we were sort of in the middle of our break is the example of Olivia Dunn, who is a gymnast at LSU. Louisiana State University and um, Olivia Dunn is the most followed athlete in the NCAA. She has the highest valuation of all female athletes um, who are pursuing NLA and the NCAA. So she is like absolutely massive. She's a white uh, um, cisgender female athlete. And um, I think she's valued at like $2.6 million, which is really massive. And like, go her. She should make every cent of that money and probably deserves triple that if we're thinking about how much labor she gives. So last fall, there was an incident um, because she has a massive following on TikTok, TikTok something like uh, 6.7 million followers as of last fall. So there was an incident where at a swim meet, a bunch of her quote unquote fans, male fans, were basically like heckle, like heckling, not heckling her is not the right word, but we're like cat calling her. And there was a video outside of like the back of the stadium where they were like kind of like low key barrier uh, kind of barriers. And there was a group of male fans who were like shouting and hollering at her, like, come here, come here. Like, we want you give us, give us Livy, give us Livy. And like, when you watch the video, it's terrifying because it seems like they want to sexually assault her in terms of the violence that's kind of spewing out of what they're doing. And uh, what happened is that she was like really scared of people who were le legitimately scared. And the fan, and she posted something on Twitter that was like, I appreciate your support, but basically please behave better. And some of the comments were like, okay, mommy, like one person actually said, okay, mommy. And some people were like, what do you expect? Um, you know, you prance around in your bathing suit, blah, 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 blah. And I think this is sort of the, 
the key issue with NIL, one of the key issues that NIL, how it plays out according to uh, gender and sexuality, because right here's a woman who is trying to make money because the college is not willing to do so. She has no kind of employment protection status. So like she asked and was able to receive more security. The whole team received more security as a result, because this is really terrifying when you watch the video. But the thing is, is that right, like so her evaluation is determined according to market demand. So there's uh, this idea from the consumer, from a patriarchal consumer, that they should be able to get whatever they want out of her because they are quote unquote paying her and they're they're consuming her as a source of entertainment. The other thing is that if you look at the sports, the mainstream sports media, if you look at the New York Times, if you look at the Atlantic, the greatest danger to women's sport is not cisgen these cisgender men who are, who are hollering at her, who are demanding her body. According to these outlets, it's trans transgender women are the biggest threat to cisgender sport. And I know you all have papers, you're going to have panels later that are talking about the trans panic. But again, the, the rhetoric that's being spun is that transgender women, Leah Thomas, I was a summer, so I really paid attention to all that. The rhetoric is that Leah Thomas and transgender women are the big threat. It's not. It is cisgender women who have been sexually assaulting and raping, who have been reaping the benefits because most of them have been white, have been basically the like plantation owners over college sport for decades. But yet again, the rhetoric is that transgender women are the ones who are really the big danger here. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, this Olivia Dunn case really exemplifies a lot of these dynamics going on here. And then just one last thing I wanna, I wanna comment about the education portion is that what do you do in a state like Florida, which is now going to be banning gender studies? Like that was the legislation that came out yesterday is that they are trying to ban gender studies, which is what Hungary did in 2018. Hungary is, is fully fascist, and I would say Florida is now controlled by a fascist government, as I've been saying for a long time. So how is an athlete such as Olivia Dunn, how are these Black female basketball players who were racially discriminated against by their white male coach, how are they going to get any kind of formal education about how to resist, how to advocate for themselves, if they're not even allowed to take gender studies courses? <clears throat> Anyways, I know we could go on a whole rant about that, but I just want to plug that in there because I think this really encapsulates a lot of the dynamics going on. No, that's I, I, thank you for for that, all three of you. That was really, I, I think, valuable discussion on the NIL and you know to use Dr. Silva's you know the 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 fact that it's basically gig work now, and um, I'm sensing almost a, a bit of irony in. Uh, the the result of what ardent supporters or or defenders of this amateurism uh, system and and this idea of you know maybe the sanctity of sport and you know we wouldn't want these athletes to be uh, compensated for fear of exploitation and in, in that way now now having to uh, you know market themselves and and go out and do more labor on top of their uh, you know work as athletes um, so I, I appreciate that. Uh, I was wondering, you know, we, this has been an excellent discussion and now kind of in wrapping up and, and as a closing question, we the, the topic came up or, or just the idea of sports and the three of you in, in your work, in your the podcast and in what you write, you know, questioning maybe the, you know, the inherent value of sport. And and you know we we touched on maybe a little bit the complicity of of college uh, or the media complex in when it comes to college sports or professional sports too, uh, but maybe trying to end on 
perhaps if we can glean some positive positive spin maybe on on sport or or the, the not not that necessarily the, the topics we're talking about, but this idea of of sport and the position it it sits in in our in our society. What can we what or what what can we perhaps glean from that uh, as you know fans? I know that we we have we have attendees who are or in, in there's uh, some of us on this on this call today who are certainly sports fans or or keep up with sports. Uh, what what kind of silver lining, perhaps, maybe to use that term, or or positive uh, elements can we can we glean today? Yeah, yeah th- this is a, a great question that we we constantly grapple with, and I don't think there's an easy answer, and I don't think there maybe is like a, a sort of optimistic approach. And I think each of us, each of the three of us, will have a different response to this question. But um, for me, this this question always reminds me of, I guess, the meme like you know, society sucks, but we have to live in it, right? Like we all have to drive a car, um, like due to all the structural, geographical, socioeconomic factors, like many of us have to drive a car. But does that mean we're climate denialists and and we don't believe in climate change and we we don't care about the environment? Um, And I don't think that is the case at all. Um, But the reason I drive a car is not some sort of lust for unabated freedom. Well, it's because we live in a society in which public transit has been divested from walking, walk, living in walkable places is uh, untenable and expensive. Corporations have been given massive trillion dollar tax cuts um, while public support and infrastructure has sort of crumbled. Those are the reasons. So I view sport in with this lens, um, and I actually think it's a, a moral imperative to analyze and critique the institutions and the powerful people that make sport harmful. Um, I can drive a car and still critique uh, big oil, and I uh, still critique divestment of public infrastructure, uh, and I, I view sport in that 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 same way. And we have to hold. Um, both the institutions and the organizations and the powerful decision makers accountable when sport is the primary and sometimes only driver of exploitation um, and harm. Um, and while we, and and more importantly, the labors on which this work rests might ultimately enjoy sports, like participants in sport might ultimately enjoy sport, we have to ensure that we hold the people accountable for the harm that's produced by that system. But also, and maybe this is the optimistic part, also form bonds of solidarity with the victims and survivors of that harm. Um, to, to perhaps put it differently and use some, some Marxist concepts, I think we have to critique the superstructure of sport. But not only the superstructure, also all of the features of the means of production that allow for harm and exploitation to um, to proliferate. And, and what I think ultimately I'm calling for uh, and where I think it's positive is solidarity with the labor on which sport is made possible. And in that way, I think being critical of sport provides a lot of opportunities to actually make so-called fandom more appealing and overall better. Much of contemporary sporting culture and, and sporting landscape is about celebrity. 
uh, and caring for the personalities in whatever game we watch. We often have these interconnections with folks, with the laborers. What better way to support those personalities and to enact our fandom than to form bonds of solidarity with them and support them in their quest for better working conditions, better playing conditions. In our case, health and safety uh, rules and regulations, and perhaps payment for, uh, uh, or equitable payment for their um, athletic labor. So in, what I'm trying to get at is by critiquing sport, we can work in solidarity with the folks within sport to make sport better. And that's what I ultimately think is the, the, the point of critique. Yeah, and I think I'll probably arrive at a very similar place uh, as Derek and just taking perhaps a, a slightly different path to get there. So I do think this question is really difficult and without any simple or straightforward answer. And in fact, it assumes, you know, fairly explicitly in, in terms of your phrasing, it assumes an affirmative answer that it is possible if complex to achieve a kind of optimistic or ethical outlook towards sport. And I'm not sure I'm even willing to grant that that is the case. It may not be possible, possible in an absolute sense to ethically consume capitalist sport or to consume college sport produced via plantation dynamics. But that's not necessarily a palatable position, right, for most people to hear. Um, so I would try to offer a sort of olive branch and suggest that the bare minimum we need to be very deliberate and self-aware in our performances of fandom. As a vanishing point, we need to imagine a mode of fandom that operates in accordance with, as Derek put it, the principle of solidarity between fans and athletes, rather than any kind of instrumental or managerial logic further heightened by fantasy sports and gambling, which invite the fan to identify with the team owner in treating the athlete as an interchangeable avatar for their desires. Fans need to advocate for the health and well-being of players. We need to resist narratives that fetishize playing through pain and instead embrace principles of load management, as they call it in the NBA. But, and this is where I think I will really lose some folks, realistically, I don't think these principles can apply ethically to all sports. I don't, I don't see that there's an ethical consumption of football, for instance, because I don't see football as morally sustainable. It's a form for me of human sacrifice, reliant on a system of structural coercion, which is to say racial capitalism, that holds up the sacrifice of one's brains as an avenue for access and opportunity that is so otherwise that is otherwise so often denied. This is not something that should exist in a humane society, no matter how much pleasure it provides to spectators. So for me, emotionally disinvesting from football is an imperative for fans genuinely in solidarity with football players. And when it comes to the plight of college football players, we should be demanding unionization and the opportunity for them to have a say in their own working conditions. Because those things matter, of course, and people are still working at college football and we should care about and uh, advocate for their conditions. Uh, but that shouldn't be the society that we imagine for them or for ourselves. So I, how do I say I, my position on this is, is always evolving. And I agree with mo with pretty much all of what Nathan and Derek say. Um, and we all have our personal relationships with sport. Like we all have our intellectual ones, but we also all have our personal ones. 
And I think um, as I'm still working through a lot of the trauma that I experienced as a result of being an athlete in terms of sexual harassment, fat phobia, still working through uh, disordered eating that I've been going through for like decades due to both club swimming as well as high school swimming, sorry, club swimming as well as college swimming. Um, I ha- it's really, really hard for me to um, have any enjoyment from sports, even though I have all these memories of, 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 you know, teamwork and having really great relationships and moments of like enormous success. Uh, when as a sophomore, I was the conference champion in one of my events. Um, you know, I have like really good memories, but at this point in my life, they're so clouded by all of the, the trauma and, and, and the, uh, physical injuries that I'm still going through. I mean, I swam and swimming is like the, the rehab sport that everyone does, right? That is a sport that doctors tell you to go do rehab, go get in the pool because that's a very gentle sport. So how does a gentle, uh, physical activity that people use for rehabilitation from injuries and surgeries, how does that get pushed so far that there are people? Like I'm since my early thirties, very, very young was having really significant disc issues that are still causing me a lot of pain. And I think so as a result, I have a really hard time enjoying any, any form of sports. Um, but I'm also like, I don't think, I don't see it as my role to tell people like you should not enjoy it. I think it's more of like, you need to be critical and hold people to the fire. And I think this idea of solidarity for unionization and um, healthcare and kind of athletes' best best interests is really key. And I think a great example of seeing this happen was with the Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, We did a couple really great episodes with Kira McCormick, who's a huge fan of the show, who's a Canadian soccer player. And um, basically there was a case where her coach, Bob Berarda, had that there have been decades of sexual and verbal and mental abuse and uh, Canadian soccer as well as well as FIFA had had not done anything about it. And so there was a game where the fan club of the team who who consisted mainly of men, they game they came to a game. And they wore shirts with some kind of message. I don't remember it was. And during the game, they actually, to to kind of show their support for athletes and the resistance against this cover-up of sexual abuse and exploitation, they they left the stadium during part of the game to show their dissatisfaction with how, how this abuse was being addressed. And I think something that can be very, very powerful, but I think most fans don't think critically. I don't know how many times I've been told that I'm like a sports, I'm a killjoy for sports. When actually the thing is I critique it because I love it so much, right? And I think that comes from all of us is that we love and we care deeply for sports and we care deeply for athletes and their health and their, their long-term, their lifelong well-being. But I think so much of that has been ruined because of the capitalist imperatives of sport and them not being addressed. Um, so I think I just I just want people to think critically. I want people to talk very critically. I want male fans to have really critical conversations and not just bond over wins and losses. Um, so so yeah. So you know, is there something good that comes out of sport? Yes, because people resist, they find personal meaning through sport. I think they're amazing moments of racial resistance, of gender resistance in sport, but it's so used to oppress and exploit and discriminate against other people. And, you know, a couple, you know, it's been a couple of years since the height of Black Lives Matter and what has been done through through sports, you know, still remains a big question. And so I think I, I think that's where I stand as of now. Thank you, all three. That that was the, those were great points to, and, and we appreciate you sharing them. Um, I apologize for for us going over. Uh, I I can't think of a better way that we could have kicked off today's symposium. I think this was we we really appreciate uh, the three of you joining us uh, for this conversation. 
their their podcast is the end of sport uh and we can find their collaborative pieces on public outlets uh, and we will certainly be looking out for for the projects the three of you are currently working on and excited to to keep up with those thank you again to johanna mellis uh, nathan common lamb and derek silva thank you so much for having us Thank you.